hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back. It is another episode of Clubhouse Talk. We were gone last week. Life happens. Life got in the way. Um, here we are. We're back. I'm here with Brett for the first half of this podcast. We're going to be doing a college basketball uh, recap now that the national championship game is over. The game was last night. We're recording this on Tuesday, the 5th. Um, we're going to go through the final four games, talk all about the Duke-UNC rivalry, Coach K, everything that is to, uh, to be talked about. They were tobacco road rivalry. Uh, and then we'll go through the national championship game. And then on the second half of this pod, I'm going to bring back on my old co-host, Joseph Baraz, after a long hiatus. He's going to be back. We're going to bring on uh, Nate, our friend from out there in Nebraska as well. We're going to get some Masters preview. It's uh, every golf fan's Christmas, a week of Christmas in a sense of finally getting back to Masters. But without uh, without further ado, we'll go ahead and jump jump on into the first half. Like I said, this will be the college basketball portion of this podcast. So uh, without further ado, Brett, how are you doing tonight? How, how are you doing tonight, man? I'm doing great, Kylie. How are you? I'm good. Um, I'm a little bit sad and depressed in a sense because uh, college basketball is over. <laughs> it was such a fun week or such a fun year this year. So much parody, uh, so much up and down of every single team. This call, this March Madness was, I think, one of the most entertaining ones that we've had in a very, very long time. You had Cinderella's uh, story of St. Peter's. You had the all blue blood final four, one of the most anticipated final fours of all time with the, with the coach K UNC game in the final four. Um, so yeah, I'm sad that it's all over, but I'm pumped because it was, they, they were some really good games this weekend. Oh, for sure. It was a great weekend of basketball. So um, let's, let's start off with We'll kind of go here in chronological order. Um, makes the most sense and kind of kind of works our way up to the the pre- uh, precipice as you will. So we'll start off with Kansas Kansas Nova. Um, Kansas goes out and wins that game. Uh, what was the final score? It was 80, 81 to sixty five. Uh, Kansas came out. I believe it was a 10-0 run to start that game. It was something something crazy. And it was really after that the game was the game was over. There was never. Um, Nova really didn't get themselves back in it. They were playing without Justin Moore, who tore his Achilles right at the very end of the Elite Eight game. Uh, Nova was a completely different team without him. They were they were a team that only played basically six guys the whole year. And you take one of those starters out of there, you look at it, five guys. I mean, it just it was not going to work. It didn't look like it was going to work out well for them going into the game, and uh, that kind of played itself out. I think some of that stamina and. Uh, the deepness of the team really showed up. Yeah, uh, that was a really fun game to watch. Both teams were shooting very well from the three-point range. Uh, they each made 13 three-pointers, actually. Both shot over 42%. So um, if you like shooting, that was the game to watch for you for the weekend. Um, but yeah, I think uh, Kansas, they, they play really fast, play really fast-paced basketball. And with Villanova only playing six players, Really, I mean, they played ten, but I mean, I'm not really it's counting. Significant minimum, minimum. Yes, it, right. Uh, with with Villanova playing in the rotations with six players, it's kind of hard to keep up with a fast paced team and a big team like Kansas. Yeah, um, especially when they're going to go out there and, and shoot the way they did. I mean, you had Ochai Bachi come out there and go. Um, he made five. Uh, I think he started off six for six and missed his last one and went six for seven from three. Uh, as you were saying, both teams are absolutely lighting it up. And when, when they go on runs like that, it's just, it's, it's going to be a little too hard for Villanova. Their style of game is what you saw, you know, in games before that, holding their opponents to the mid fifties, having these low methodical scoring games. And then they just weren't able to, to muster up enough energy or make a shot going down the stretch. Right. Um, I, I mean, there's not, there wasn't too much to, to say there. I, I, Jay Wright, I, I think another fantastic season there for Villanova, Big East cha- uh, tournament champions. Uh, they were one game out of the, or they finished one game behind in the regular season championship, make it all the way back to another final four, their third time in six years. Uh, it, it's pretty insane stuff what he's doing up there in, in Villanova and how much he is just turning this into a legitimate powerhouse. 
Yeah. And it's crazy that in this time, this day and age where there's a lot of one and done, so you don't see a ton go through Villanova. I mean, Colin Gillespie's in his sixth year. Jermaine Samuels, I believe, is in his fifth year. Um, and they're really going to miss those guys next year. And likely they'll miss Justin Moore next year because of how long the Achilles tear is to recover from. But um, you'll see a completely new Villanova team in 2022-2023. Uh, so it'll be really exciting to see how they uh, can piece together a winning program or a winning team with with their uh, – with their coaching stuff that I know can get it done. Yeah. I'll be curious to see if their, uh, their strategy changes up a little bit based off the personnel. Maybe they, they go out there and they get, maybe they turn into a little bit more fast paced. I don't know what their team's going to look like, but when you start having that much turnover of, of key contributing guys, you, you see teams sometimes kind of flip an identity. So uh, it'll be interesting to watch and see if, uh, if Jay Wright can adapt to that. But on the, on the flip side, I think this was the, the one that everybody wanted to talk about. Obviously, this is the the game of one of the uh, most interesting Final Four matchups of all time, uh, arguably the most anticipated one. You have Coach K on his retirement tour. Uh, he got knocked out. He got destroyed by UNC in his last home game at Cameron Indoor Stadium a month ago um, to his biggest rival by UNC. They get a chance at redemption. Uh, here in the final four, a UNC team that came in as an eight seed. Uh, they got through Baylor, they and then outside, and then they get through UCLA, and then they kind of get an easy game there in the Elite Eight against St. Peter's. St. Peter's at that point really it just kind of the, the clock struck midnight on Cinderella. Uh, there, that that one was was looking at it, its last legs there going to that game. That was just a really bad matchup, I think, for St. Peter's. But, um, yeah, you go into this game, and, and everyone was wondering, you know, is this really going to be? you know, Duke's shining moment is Coach K going to be able to go out on top. And Hubert Davis and UNC did what basically, I don't know, anybody else could do this. Uh, they have, in my opinion, forever won the Tobacco Road rivalry. I don't know if it's ever going to get any better than what they uh, felt on Saturday night as they knock off Duke 81-77 to in a game that it was a ridiculous, thrilling game to watch through and through. Oh, it really was. Um, I mean, North Carolina is their identity is to rebound the basketball, and that is what they did. They had 50 rebounds as a team. Armando Armando Baycott himself had 21 rebounds in a Final Four game. That is ridiculous. In only, I think it was 33 minutes he played in that game because he rolled his ankle, was out for a couple of minutes, and he fouled out early. So he did that with not playing seven minutes of that game, which makes what he did that much more insane. Oh, it's crazy. Um, but you're right. I mean, they they absolutely dominated the boards. It led to a lot of uh, second-chance points for him, a lot of opportunities. And then you had Caleb Love doing shades of what he did in the Baylor game. Um, Duke was up in the first half. They looked fairly in control. They came out in the second half on a nice seven or eight Oh run. I believe it was, and it looked like Duke was kind of in position to run away with this thing. UNC comes back and they take a huge lead. Duke comes back again. And then the last, I'd say seven minutes or so it was, they were trading blows and Caleb Lovell goes off for another 18 points. I believe it was in the second half, um, including hitting a dagger three with 30 ish seconds left um, to, to put them up. And then Duke goes down. They miss a three. And they foul, uh, and then Caleb Loves ices that game with free throws there for them to, to win by four. But it was it was pretty insane of the clutch shots that he was he was making. Yeah, you really couldn't ask for a better end to this era of this rivalry. I mean, the past fifteen years. I mean, up until I guess when Roy Williams. Uh, retired. It was Coach K and Roy Williams dogging it out for the top of the ACC. And I read this stat in the last 100 games. Um, these teams have split wins 50-50. That is incredible. And the point differential in those games is like 10. As oh, it, I think it might be less like, than that. It, it's really, it, it's beyond crazy when you start, I think going into, maybe going into this year, I want to say it was the point differential was actually high. 
or maybe it was last year. I, at some point, I remember that, that rivalry was like the games were dead even in terms of win loss and the point differential was was tied. It, it, just to show you of like how ridiculously competitive the rivalry is. I mean, that shows you that the games, they're not blowouts every time they play. And clearly it goes right back and forth. I would venture a large winning percentage for both those teams is on their home floor. And then you have the occasional meetings in um, Brooklyn up in the ACC championship tournament. And then this was the first ever time in the history of, of Duke, North Carolina, that you get them in the um, in March Madness to phase off against each other, which also was, was pretty wild to think about. But I guess when you dig down, the selection committee likes to try and keep conference teams out of the same bracket. So if this was ever going to happen, it would have to happen in the Final Four um, or National Championship game. And then it's it's really hard to get two, two teams from the same conference there. Right. I mean, you don't you don't see that too often, especially them playing each other. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the last time that we had a conference, I can't remember the last time we had two conference opponents playing in this final four together, but I want to say it was probably back in the early 2010s. I think Syracuse played uh, Louisville, if I'm not mistaken, in 14. Uh, Might have been the last time. It just, it's really rare. So, um, but obviously this was the, this was the end for Coach K. Um this solidifies the, the end of the road for them. I, there is no, there's no words. I don't think to truly describe how much he's meant to the sport. Um, he goes out as one of the winningest coaches of all time, or if not the winningest coach, I'd have to uh, want to double check that before I say it for sure. But um, clearly one of the greatest coaches in Duke history, probably ever. Um, it's going to be really hard for anybody at this point to really solidify it and pass what he's done in terms of accolades and records. I just, just, I mean, what are your thoughts on the legacy that is coach? K? I mean, me and you off, uh, off record have talked about this. Um, and I, I definitely think he's one of the greatest coaches of all time. I'm not ready at all to say the greatest coach of all time, because that spot is saved for John Wooden until someone else can produce that amount of championships I don't care what era it is. I know a lot of people will say, oh, he played in the, he played in the 70s and the 60s. Oh, he coached in the 70s and 60s. Oh, it's different basketball now. Well, yeah. But still, you're you're coaching a team to 11 championships. That's incredible. Yes, but like, no. they were just as hard to win back then as they are now. You're playing exactly level of competition. Like It was just as hard as it is then comparatively as it is now. Exactly. But no, I, I do think I think Coach K is one of the greatest of all time. He's definitely on the Mount Rushmore, as those people, as some people say. But uh, no, I, I I'm, I'm glad to see him. I'm, I'm glad to see him go. I, I don't know if that's <laughs> I don't know if some some of your listeners may be Duke fans, so they might be a little salty hearing me say that. But I think I think uh, him leaving and Roy Williams and um, shoot even guys like Jim Beheim and Tom is are getting up there. I mean, I, th- I think those guys retiring just opens the door for a new, a new legion of, of young coaches to step into the, into the fold and make names for themselves and really start building their careers. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many, and you're going to see it more and more because like, like you said, Tom is starting to get old ish. Um, Cal is getting up there. Mark few is an older coach. Um, Rick Barnes, um, Bill Self's been around for forever. I mean, these guys have been in the game for a long time. And so you're going to have to start seeing these young coaches will come up and, and make games for themselves. It's going to be uh, fun to see that happen. But I, and I do want to say I was coach K does have the most wins all time. He has about 200 more than Jim Beheim for the most in um, men's college basketball. So he's got it finished with 1170 wins uh, in his career. He, I mean, that's absolutely outstanding. It's ridiculous. He had like a 70 more greater than a 70% win percentage in the NCAA tournament, which is also just as, just as absurd to think about. Um, You know, I I saw after the game that there was all this, I don't want to say like coach K hate, but like there were so many people that were like, Oh, I'm so glad it's, you know, coach K goes out, you know, he he doesn't make it to another championship game. And I guess it's a little bit kind of like a Yankees feel of, you know, I, no one wants to see the Yankees win another World Series because they've just won enough. Um, but I guess I, I personally have never had any hard feelings or anything towards towards Coach K. I've never disliked the man for any reason. 
Um, it was a little surprising kind of those reactions on social media play out, but nonetheless, I think it's still a ridiculously successful season. And honestly, this might sound crazy as we sit here and talk about how great of a coach coach K is, but I think Duke's going to be even better next year because they're actually will have a real coach. I don't know how much coaching coach K really did this year. Right. Um, and it'll be, it'll be, I think it'll be really interesting to see how John Shire takes over the ship at Duke. I mean, he's getting handed the keys to one of the most prestigious and most well-known basketball programs in the country. So, I mean. Worked out pretty well for Hubert Davis at UNC the way they That is That is very true. The exact I, I, I'm same a way. Big fan, I'm a big fan of that guy. He brings the energy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you watch that national championship game, I think that anybody would, would sit there and say, look, that is a guy that they would like to play for. Um, and so – yeah, the Coach K rivalry ends. Tobacco Road, well, in my opinion, forever won by UNC because if a Duke fan ever tries to go out for anything, all you got to say is that you ended Coach K's career in the Final Four, and it's not going to get any better than that. But we'll move on to the actual national championship game. Duke – or sorry, Kansas-UNC last night. Um, first things first, I want to say this because I'll continue to harp on this for every uh, NCAA championship game, which really will just be the – uh, college and through college football and college basketball. But why do we still have these things on a freaking Monday night? I hate it. I absolutely hate it. I, I mean, you have a sport that's predicated around Saturdays, especially football, um, which is far worse than this. You don't have football played on any other day in the entire year other than Saturday. Well, I guess you have. Uh, have you, you ever heard of Maction? Sorry, you're right. We do get some action on some Tuesdays and you get the occasional Thursday and Friday night games. But for the large portion of college football, it's obviously all on Saturdays. And then you decide to put a championship game out on Monday. College basketball, yes, you get Tuesday night. You get kind of throughout the week. But the big days were always Saturdays when everybody's playing. And so it it just doesn't make any sense to me. I, I know it probably goes back to, to TV money. And really, it probably goes – it's probably some outdated philosophy because Monday nights used to be a huge viewing window for the national audience. And in this today day and age, I, I think that you would still pull just as large of an audience on Saturday. Um, and I would love to see them give it a try. I'm just viewing numbers would be on Saturday. Cause I think that you could get a lot of a large parties and large events kind of centered around watching a game on a Saturday night. But I digress. The game itself was a game of run after run after run. Not only were the were the boys running up and down the floor all night, but the teams were just going on runs. Kansas comes out, um, 7-0 run. UNC comes back, ties it up. Uh, Kansas goes on a fairly large run – or, sorry, UNC goes on a massive run there in the first half. They lead by 15 at halftime, and it looked all but basically dead for Kansas. Kansas kept trying to force the ball inside to David McCormick, who kept getting smothered by uh, Mondo Baycott. Every time they got in there, he couldn't get any leverage. Baycott was big enough and strong enough to kind of push him out of the way, would force him under the basket. They couldn't get any good shots off. They were missing layups. They were missing their threes. It was a horrific half of basketball for um, Kansas, and they were down 15. Like I said, all the loss at half. I mean, did, did you have any other way of seeing it at halftime? No, I thought they were done. I thought they were completely done at third dead. Um, I didn't think they had a single shot of coming back. I'm glad I didn't turn off that game. Yeah. Um, I think you and a lot of other people, there probably were plenty of people that did turn it off considering oh. your, at that point yeah. it been what, 1030, 1045 on the East coast. You had a lot of people getting up for work today and it's a 15 point game at halftime. It's the fourth largest halftime uh, lead in NCAA tournament history at, for a championship game. So, I mean, it's a, it was a historic half by UNC and it looked like they were world beaters. They were off and running. They were going to get themselves another national championship. Uh, Hubert Davis was going to become the second coach all time to win a national championship in his first season. The only other one was a coach. Uh, I forget who he was for, but it was back in the sixties. So not a very easy thing to do winning in your first season. And then Kansas comes out a lot like the Miami game in the sweet 16 and just pure world beaters just the first six minutes of that second half. Right. Um, 
Yeah, that that's right. You were uh, Don Haskins from UTEP. That was the other uh, rookie coach to win. The only guy who's won a national championship as a uh, rookie head coach. But uh, you ever seen the movie Glory Road? If you haven't, check it out. I actually have not, so I will add that to my to my list. You're serious. You've never I seen have. Glory Road? Nope, I have not. You're a lot That's of my friends will tell you. A lot of my fr- friends would uh, would chime in and tell you that I am what you would call movie deprived. You're uh, also uncultured if you haven't seen that. Yeah, there's a lot of really good movies I haven't seen. It it would be quite disturbing to a lot of my listeners out there. I think if I made a list, if you guys made a list of uh, famous great movies and how many I would sit there and tell you I haven't seen, it would probably be an an outstanding number um, to a lot of people. But nonetheless. So, like I said, Kansas comes back. They tie it up. Um, they take the lead within the first eight minutes of that second half. So, they come all the way back from down 15. They take the lead and look like Kansas was just going to run away and hide for a second. And then UNC comes back. And the last four or five minutes was still filled with kind of mini runs. Team would go on a 5-0, 6-0 run. The other team would answer. Um, and then the, the last kind of minute or so was, was kind of pure mayhem. Uh, yeah, um, I am really not so sure why North Carolina ran that play at the end that they did. I mean, there really wasn't talking, even a play. They kind of just chucked it up from the top of the key. I'm talking, yeah, I'm talking about the, the last shot. About Caleb Love's shot with like 19 seconds left, or are you talking about the one after the out of bounds? Well, really both, but I'm talking about the one of the, after the out of bounds specifically. Yeah, um, I have a pretty good idea on that one. But before we get to that, so yeah, because they're up three with Kansas scores. Uh, they were down, they were up one, pounded into McCormick. Um, Baycock had just fallen back out of the game, re-rolled his ankle. It was a pretty easy bucket for David McCormick down low. They go up three with 22 seconds left. They roll down the floor. And Caleb Love jacks up a three. Uh Really poor decision. They don't get it. Uh, they end up turning the ball over. They get the offensive rebound, turn it over. Kansas has the ball. They're gonna then you're up three. You're gonna get foul with 15 seconds. Have some free throws to ice the game, and they step out of bounds with four seconds on the clock. North Carolina gets the ball back, and if you watch that play, um, I think the play was actually for Brady Manick on the far end. They were they were passing it at him on their side of the bench on um, that side of the floor, right? Basically right in front of them. And if you watch Manic, he cut underneath the rim and is rolling. And I think it was going to be a deep pass to the other uh, wing and he full blown slips and trips. I don't know if it was sweat on the floor, if he tripped over his own feet or what, but he completely ate it. And UNC didn't have a timeout, so they couldn't stop the play. So then they had to just dump the ball into Caleb Love. Caleb Love kind of does a shot fake and a fadeaway three goes off the front of the rim. Not really a competitive shot. And uh, UNC is your national champions uh, winning 72 to 69. In a game that really was not all. It, it, the funny thing is a lot of people were expecting a lot higher score. I would say it was a fairly offensive game. Um, but despite the, the poor shooting, I guess it was filled because of the second half. Sorry, Kansas won. If I said UNC, but I can't. Kansas won seventy-two to sixty-nine. Don't want to, do not want to get that wrong. But I, I mean, I guess your thoughts on on this season for Kansas, uh, Big Twelve going back to back national championships. Baylor now Kansas. Um, Bill Self getting his second national championship. There's a lot of different ways that we can take this. Um, what are your thoughts? Um, I've never been the biggest biggest Kansas fan. I'm gonna be completely honest. So I kind of hate seeing it. Uh, my, my brother's wife, so my sister-in-law is a huge Kansas fan, and she always lets me know that uh, whenever whenever Creighton and Kansas play, Kansas they'll win, and they, they play a decent amount because we ended up getting uh, the big in the Big East uh, Big Twelve Challenge. We end up getting drawn with Kansas most uh, more often than not. So when they beat us by two points, or in this case, this year, six points in the round of 32 and then end up going to win the national championship uh, when we should not even have been there in the first place. Uh, she <laughs> she likes to let me know. So, uh, I mean, good for good for Bill Self, good for Kansas. They're a bunch of cheaters, but. Um, yeah, they're facing a lot of um, they're facing a lot of uh, level one NCAA violations at this. Point. Yeah, so, yeah. But uh, uh, no, it's good. Good for the players. I don't have any problem with their players besides Remy Martin. I don't like him. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, the guy you said at the beginning of the tournament's not going to, you know, he sucks. He, he's a terrible player. Then he goes out and almost wins uh, most outstanding players. So that was not. Yeah, hey, we all have cold takes every once in a while. It's not the greatest Brett take of all time. No, it's a bad take, but. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Good, good for, good for uh, Christian Braun and or Brown or however you say his German it is, last name. It's Brown. It's pronounced Brown. It looks and spells like Braun. Well, good for him and McCormick and Abaji and all those guys, but not good for Remy Martin and not good for Bill Self, that cheater. It just shows how hard it is to win a national championship. I mean, Bill Self, Self has been consistently one of the best teams. They've had a one seed in like six of the last 13 tournaments, and they've won two times um, in that span. Pretty insane if just how hard it is. It's gone to the Final Four like five times in that span with only two national championships. It's just, it's hard to win in March, man. And so, um, yeah, it, it's good for them. Good for me. I had a Kansas, I placed a Kansas future two months or three months ago in January and got to cash out last night at 16 to one. So that made my night pretty well. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a great season. Um, congrats to Jayhawk nation out there. Um, big win for them. Really surprising after how they looked at certain times this year, but they turned it on at the right point. They they had the horses to get it done, and uh, and yeah, it was just a, it was a really exciting season. So I'm looking forward to seeing what we get uh, whenever we get back to it here next fall. But I guess uh, lasting lasting thoughts on this tournament or this season as a whole. Um, not too many lasting thoughts, but I am just going to miss miss basketball. And I know basketball relatively has a shorter off season compared to football, just because of how long the season is. But I am, I am, I am going to miss it. I am too. It's uh, it sucks. You, you go from now until what November is starting that back early November, October, November, yeah, yeah. So it's it's a long five. What is that? Six months. It sucks. Um, college basketball is one of my favorites. It's a long season. It's great. It's gets me through the winter. Um, all the passion, all the, uh, the the conference games, everything, all the craziness, the stuff that doesn't make sense. It's awesome. But nonetheless, great season. Really enjoyed uh, having you on to, to help walk we walk us through as we got here through all of March Madness leading up to March Madness. Um, our picks weren't great, but nonetheless, we still walked our way through. None of us had Kansas, I don't think, if I'd have to go back and double check. Did Ryan have Kansas? Uh, Ryan may have had Kansas. I'm Either had Kansas or Gonzaga. I can't remember. Um, but I, I don't think if either. Of, I think some of us may have had Kansas in our Final Four. But it's funny because they were one seed, and a lot of people kind of had them a little bit underrated in the sense coming into March Madness. But they they proved us wrong. Ryan did have Kansas. Okay, so there you go. Ryan had Kansas and Texas Tech and all Big Twelve championship. <laughs> That's right. I remember him saying that now. So, well, let's give our public congrats to Ryan then on uh, on picking Rock Chalk Jayhawk to, to get it done, my friend. Good job. Ryan, you can go to Kylie's address at Nashville, Tennessee <laughs> to pick up your $500 winnings. Yeah, exactly. You can uh, reach, out, reach out to me, but uh, we'll, get you, we'll get you the pool winnings. But, um, Nonetheless, uh, appreciate Brett. And then now the uh, the second half of this pod will be all Masters preview. All right, everyone. So this is the Masters preview portion. As I said, the first half was all the college basketball Final Four National Championship recap with Brett. And now, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to have on – we're bringing back Joe after a long hiatus. Uh, he was, he's been busy coaching up his high school golf team, uh, helping those boys – to a uh, great season, our old alma mater. And then uh, Nate is back on to also do some uh, golf preview. I know he's been really pumped about this for a while. So um, it's Masters Week, guys. How pumped are you? Best week of the year. Oh, it, to me, it just, oh, it's just so fantastic. I mean, it just brings back so many memories, you know, of our days playing high school golf. I'm sure you guys are, you know, this is when the tournament started. And the Masters started, you know, the terms that we're playing in and then also watch on TV and it just kicks off. It feels like college basketball ending. And I feel like this really kicks off, ramps up the golf watching season um, big time. And so, yeah, it's like a holiday week. It's awesome. 
Oh yeah, I, there's going to be uh, for all those employers that have large uh, that have employees that are large golf fans. They will be uh, not productive come Thursday and Friday this week. I'm sure um, <laughs> there will not be a lot of production being done by those people. But um, nonetheless, it, it's. I mean, this is golf's mecca um, every year. It, it's the one major that we get that's at the same course every year. Everybody knows Augusta National. Um, Augusta continues to tweak their course a little bit every year. We'll talk about kind of those new course changes. We'll talk about uh, who we think could have really big weeks uh, this week. Maybe some top names to fade if there if there are any guys that you think are near the top of the leaderboard that you don't expect to have a great week. But I think we would be remiss if we did not start off this master's preview pod, if we did talk about the biggest storyline of golf for, I don't know how long this is literally insane that we're sitting here talking about this. I know Joe, we, we mentioned this last year when the tiger incident happened, we mentioned this back in December after um, tiger did the PNC father son challenge that there is no way we would ever anticipate this. Maybe he might be back by the British open for St. Andrews. And here we are, it's April, and Tiger had his press conference at Augusta, and he said that he's going to give it a go. You can never doubt Tiger Woods. I mean, that was that was the first time in my life I've ever bet against the guy. I mean, not literally, but um, challenged what might be possible, and, and we were wrong yet again. The guy just finds a way to be a superhuman, if you could even say human. Uh, it, it's just really incredible. I mean, like you were saying a year ago, we were like, well, we hope we can see Tiger play again and, and walk normal. And now here he is not only competing, but by all accounts, you know, potentially going to be a factor. So it's just, it's, it's very awesome to see. Yeah. And I mean, I, Tiger was not only, I mean, he's got to be one of the most, one of, if not the most influential athlete of all time. I mean, he's, he, the way he, he's impacted golf, I think is more so than, any other athlete has impacted their own respective sport. I think we're all in agreement on that, but I think it's because of his highs are so high and his lows are so low. And there's been so many of both, you know, from, you know, the late two thousands from the scandal broke out and Oh, is he done? They came back one, five times in 2012, reclaimed world number one, boom, his back goes out, you know, and then we see him a few years ago, at the yips and he can't break 80. And we're like, who is this guy? He's just a shell of himself. And then wins the 2019 Masters. Just the highs are high, the lows are low. And I think physically this accident he had last February has got to be the most intense. I mean, with his back fusion, that, that's got to impact his golf swing the most. But I'm, I'm just so interested to see how his leg holds up this week. With There's not a flat lie on that course. Um, and so especially that walk, all those hills. Um, but Joe, as you said, I mean, you can't doubt the guy. I mean – that's what we just continue to do. And I, we've learned all this at this point. I mean, I exist at this point, I expect him to make the cut and, you know, play well. I mean, we, I think that was the thing we knew going four or five months ago was that Tiger, we saw him hit the ball to PNC father, son. And you're like, okay, he, he clearly looks like he can hit the ball. The ball speed is there off the tee. Um, his swing looks fine. He can chip, he can play. The, the question was going to be, could he walk four competitive rounds at Augusta? And it was, I guess it was late last week, he kind of heard some rumors that he was out at his home course of medalist and he was out there walking. And you're like, okay, so maybe he's out there just trying to test the leg. And then he takes his private jet and he flies up to Augusta last Tuesday and goes out there and he walks 18 holes, actually ends up walking 27 because he played the part three course. He takes Charlie and, and JT out there. And so he goes down, he walks 27 and he clearly he felt well enough after that, that he then shows back up on Sunday. And when he showed back up on Sunday of this week, that was the moment that I was like, okay, this is for like, this is for real. This is actually happening. I don't think he would have come back the second time. Well, he, he would have showed up for the champions dinner, I think tonight anyways. But other than that, I don't think he would have, I don't think he would have showed up till today if he wasn't going to play. So he shows up on Sunday, he's out there practicing, he's hitting the ball. Everything looks fine. He's out there. Like we said, with the ball speed, he's getting up there. 172, 173. Um, I mean, this is above tour average type stuff that he's out there hitting it. It's just going to be a question of, can he walk? And what's that recovery going to be like after after each day? Um, Augusta National did him a huge favor by putting him in that morning uh, late wave, which he almost always does anyways because TV wants him uh, for Friday afternoon. But he gets him that little bit of extra time to recover, obviously going off at 1030 on Thursday 
And then he's going to get, I think it's like a 157. So he's more, you know, almost 24 hours to recover versus if he had to go late early and could only turn around with 12 hours. So it's a huge difference uh, for him that way. But I'm with you, Nate. I, I think that at this point, there's no reason to think that Tiger's not going to be able to, to work, uh, work his way around this golf course. I mean, he might be able to make the break, maybe be, be able to make the cut left-handed the way he knows his golf course. I mean, he knows like the back of his hand. Um, he knows where to miss it. He knows how to get his I'm there. And I'm, I'm in the boat with you that I think that there's no reason to expect that a guy who's never missed the cut here in his entire career is suddenly going to miss it this year. Yeah. And you look at the way that he won the 2019 masters was he just leaned on experience. I mean, like he, he missed it in the right spots on 12 when all the guys were putting the ball in Ray's Creek. He knocked it in the middle of the green. 16, he played the slope. 15, he put himself in position off the tee. Um, and then 18, he just played it safe and got it home with a bogey and laid it up short right of the green. That gave himself an easy little pitch shot. So he's not going to be, you know, the, the DJ style of overpowering it and just trying to make a ton of birdies. He's going to methodically plot his way around the course and he's going to beat you with his mind. And I think he still has the talent to in the hands to be able to compete score-wise. So I'm not saying the guy's going to win the thing, but I'd be shocked if he went out there and laid an egg, like Nate was saying, and went back to like shooting an 80 or something like that. I, I truthfully don't think the guy would play if he didn't think that he could break par and compete. I agree. And I, and I don't think if this was any other tournament, he'd be rushing to get back and play. I think Augusta has such a uh, – a, you know, a special spot in his heart and in his mind that he knows, oh, I can compete there. You know, I, I have an advantage there. You know, my body may not be 100%, but I just think, yeah, just the way, as we've said, how he plots around the golf course, um, just the memories that he's had. I think you hear him talk about all the time, you know, his game's good, but it's not in tournament shape yet. You know, he's, he's said that throughout the years. And I, I think tournament shape at Augusta is totally different than tournament shape anywhere else at Valspar, you know, when he played at Innersbrook a few years ago, like, like at Augusta, he's always in shape, you know, there just because of the mental advantage he has and the mental disadvantage. So many other people have there where it's just such this legendary track. And uh, yeah, it'll be, it'll be exciting. I I do want to say how cool it is. Kylie referenced it before his relationship with, with the Thomas family, you know, just to hear him talk about how JT is like the little brother he never had. And, Charlie's like the little brother JT never had. It's just, it's so cool to see Tiger, who's was always this untouchable guy, um, just be down to earth and uh, just start being cordial with some people. And what a dream for JT, you know, being a, in his mid twenties, growing up watching this guy and he's now best friends with the greatest golfer ever. Like what a, what a dream. I'm sure he's leaning heavily on a lot of Tiger experience and, and imagine playing those rounds with him last week and, and this week and, um, what he's been able to pick up from Tiger, I'm sure is insane. I mean, and some of the other stuff that you just talked about with Tiger being here, if you go out and look at some of the photos from the practice round on Monday, the crowds that were out there following, I believe it was Tiger, JT, and Freddie Couples, and just the large, large crowds. John Rom said in his press conference today when they were, when he was asked about the crowds, he was like, because he was out there playing on the front nine at the same time. He said, I've, I have played in PGA Tour Sundays, and there haven't been that many fans out there on a Sunday. This is a Monday afternoon at Augusta. And Tiger's got these behemoth galleries, which is also really cool because this is the first year since 19 that we've had full galleries. We obviously had the November Masters, and then last year it was, it was a much shorter or much smaller amount of patrons. We have the grandstands back. So we, it's a huge celebration of finally getting fans back after the COVID pause um in the pandemic but then you also throw in the fact that you get tiger coming back and it's one of the greatest comeback stories in sports and this is what we're left with i mean the guy hasn't played a competitive golf in 17 months and we're sitting here talking about him rolling out there at, at the lar- at the biggest golf tournament in the world and not only making a cut which granted i will say when you when we say make the cut and it, to a lot of people that might sound shocking I'm like how does tiger make the cut well you look at you look at augusta and it making the cuts not as hard as you think when you start breaking it down by numbers, because there's 91 players playing in it top, or 50 players and ties make the cut. And then you've got some past champions. There's probably about eight or 10 of those that are guys like Sandy Lyle, that they're not going to make the cut. And then you throw in another five or six amateurs. Those guys aren't going to make the cut. And then you throw in some full-blown rookies that haven't played the course before. Um, 
that squeak in that maybe won a tournament late April last year and have been playing like crap this year, but because they won a tournament last season, they're in. And so maybe those guys aren't going to play well. So, so you could already throw out, I would say 15 guys going into this tournament minimum, maybe 20 that aren't going to make the cut. So now you're talking about, you got to be 20 guys, but I think Tiger's experience alone is going to be able to help them to be 20 guys. So, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, and the last thing before we start moving on to the core stuff is weather this week. I, I'm curious if you guys think this, this helps tiger, if this hurts tiger, um, you got two inches, two plus inches of rain today at, at the course, obviously it's going to severely soften it up. Augusta has the ability to, to dry that thing up as much as they possibly want, but I'm sure it's going to be soft come Thursday. It's going to play long. Um, and then you're talking about 15 to 15 to 20 mile an hour winds, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it's going to be pretty nice. But honestly, Saturday, Friday and Saturday is going to be a little cool. High of 61, high of uh, 64, lows in the mid-40s. I mean, you're going to have guys playing out there in, in the high 40s, low 50s for most of the day, um, especially on Saturday. So it, it's going to be a little bit different weather than we're used to in Augusta, too. I think the cold weather, I would say, probably hurts him a little bit just because he needs a little bit warmer temperature to keep his body loose. He's alluded to that even before he had the ankle stuff, but I don't know that the wet and the wind really hurts him. I think it it's kind of like a neutralizer for the rest of the field because it takes out some of the speed. I think it had if it was firm and fast, it would be more of a tiger advantage because he knows the course so well and he knows where you can and can't miss it in those conditions. But I don't know that it necessarily hurts him. I just don't think it gives him as big of an advantage. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it ends up being a wash of – you know, hurt and help. I mean, I, I just think about mentally, like, you know, he talks about his tournament shape and I think part of it has to be how mentally sharp you are. Like, yeah, you can go, you know, you can walk 18 holes at the medalist in three and a half hours and play two balls, you know, but if you're out in 20 mile an hour winds grinding over every shot in a five, five and a half hour round, like that's a long day. And I know, I mean, he's won 82 times out here. And so he's, he's obviously used to it, but, but not having, playing around like that in 17 months. I think that's the competitive rust that we'll see if he can shake off. And um, I think the rust just gets added when you throw in weather like that. But I think he, it, it, I think it'll be a wash at the end of the day. We could stay here, I think for an hour between the three of us and, and just enjoy talking Tiger and what this might be and what this means to have him back for the sport. But I actually want to flip it to where, who might be benefiting from this by having Tiger in the field? There's his the storyline. It is taken over every other storyline. There's typically a handful, four or five coming into Augusta, and there is no other one this week. Purely, it's the only thing the news outlets want to talk about, and rightfully so. But there's a few other, I think, large storylines that are getting swept on the rug that might help some of these guys. You start looking at it, Rory's coming back, trying to get the career grand slam for another year. Um, Scotty Scheffler is rolling in at world number one and nobody even and very, very few people know that, that he's one of the hottest players out there. Cam Smith is coming in, having won the tournament of champions and then the players championship. And he's one of the hottest players out there. Um, you've got John Ron, John Rom coming back here. Uh, who's competed very well. He's never been able to get a green jacket, but he think he has four top tens those last four times here. Justin Thomas has bones on the back this year. He's trying to win a major um, and Spieth, Spieth's been playing rightfully terrible until Sunday of the Valero Texas Open. He goes out and gains seven strokes to the field, tee to green, and his greatest ball striking day in like six years on tour. And Spieth comes back to Augusta where he continues to to just have one of the most elite uh, course histories of all time. I guess it's like, who do you guys think this benefits the most? All the Tiger talk. I would say Rory personally, just because, I mean, this Augusta's been like, the bane of his golf career. I mean, it, it's gotten bad to worse the longer he's been there. Um, so I think the less pressure on him and the less he's talked about and the less he has to answer is this the year that you get the grand slam, the better. Um, I mean, obviously there'll always be a little bit of it, but I think the tiger distraction has the whole media completely consumed and they're not really worried about Rory. And he's honestly played fairly well this season. So he, there's no reason not to think he could win it. And I think a little bit less pressure could help him seal the deal for once. Yeah, I agree. I, I, th I think Rory pressures off him the most. I mean, since that Sunday 80, 
you know, early 2010s. When was that? Like 2014? 2011. 2011. Yeah. When he blew up. Yeah. yeah it's been, yeah. I mean, like you said, it's been the bane of his existence ever since. And arguably his top gear is better than anybody else's top gear, you know, and just, it's just so rare that we get that out of Rory. And so, yeah, I'd love to see him string that together and wrap up the career grand slam this week. But, you know, I, I look at Scheffler. I mean, just hearing some of his interviews, just how down to earth of a guy, how humble of a guy he is talking about, oh, you know, the accomplishments on the course, they don't change who I am. You know, I'm, I'm just still who I am playing board games with my wife, you know, on our patio, you know, just <laughs> so, so down to earth. Um, I, I, I like him. He's hot right now. I, I think those guys that have just been on fire, him, Cam Smith, you know, JT, he's been knocking on the door. His stats are silly this year, but that hasn't gotten a win yet. Um, I, I think just that group of guys that are just so hot and that their confidence is through the roof. I, th- I think just umbrella over them that that's, that that's who benefits the most. Yeah. I, I'm right there with you guys. I think, I think Rory probably benefits the most out of any particular single person. And then it, it's all those guys that maybe would be gunning for that, that they, they just don't get talked about coming into it. So, um, and they just don't have to answer as many questions. They get asked about Tiger instead of getting asked about yourself. And then other people aren't getting asked about like, you know, Oh, what's it like with Scotty Scheffler being number one, like those questions. So those questions, it's all about, you know, what will Tiger this Tiger that, and you just get to kind of deflect it off of your stuff. So, um, with, with all that, let's, let's get into, uh, there were two course changes this year. Um, and we'll briefly talk about that and then get into our, uh, kind of picks to win, picks to fade, et cetera. But the, the first course change was on 11. Um, the tee box was moved further back into the left. So what this will do is actually, um, when it was kind of where it was, you really were forced to almost play up the left side. And then it really didn't give you much of a good angle to go out the green. There was no real risk reward because you would either blast it an extra 40 yards, right. And you would get in this weird little outcove where you would have a straight shot at the green, or you hit up the left side and then you're just going to put it in the left rough and it's really kind of an impossible shot to go at the green. Then everyone's just going to bail right at the green and get up and down. That's kind of how everyone started to play the hole. And so to make it more of a true for what the hole was designed, they moved it left. It opens up that right side of the fairway to give yourself a flat lie and more of an angle to kind of take an aggressive line over the tee or over the trees. They've taken down some of the trees there right off the fairway and instead kind of pushed out these three single pines. If anybody watched the Augusta National Women's Amateur, one of the girls actually got caught behind one of these trees. It was interesting to see because um, it's something that you had never really seen before. It's just three singular pines, little skinny pines that you'll have to work your ball around. So you'll either have to cut it and start it off the water and try and cut it up far enough right to play it off the slopes. Or you're going to have to start it right and have a ball hooking and it's going to run towards the water and you risk it running down and uh, running off the slopes in there. So I think that's going to make that whole play significantly more difficult on a hole that already is probably the hardest one in the course anyways. Yeah. I mean, that they pretty much covered up that gap from where tiger was in 2019 uh, was, I think the logic and it kind of brings in the water a little bit more into play on the approach shot, even if you're in the fairway, cause you're going a little more directly over it. But yeah, that, that 11 and 12 are plenty difficult as is. I mean, that that's a gruesome stretch. So um, that will be, Quite, quite an interesting uh, little little switch up there. It's always interesting how when Augusta does course changes to me because it's like even better than it was. But every year, well, it's more strategy instead of okay, let's just move it back. Like I know that's what they did on fifteen, but there's a lot of thought that went into what they did on eleven. Instead, of, let's just make the hole longer. You talk to some of the caddies like Bones and some of the other caddies that may have done this a whole bunch of times. They'll swear that like Augusta will go out there and they'll they'll be like, this bunker was moved a yard. And like they'll do little tiny tweaks even to like that amount of like, oh, we're going to move this bunker one yard or three yards just to like eat up a little bit, a few more golf balls. And like you said, everything's all strategy. Um, Nate, any thoughts on 11? You want to bump to jump over to 15? No, yeah, I, no specific thoughts on 11. I mean, I just think it's it's just in true Augusta fashion. Everything they do is pristine and premier. And it, from their, you know, maintenance of the grounds to just their course redesign, you know, just as we talked about these little tweaks, um, wouldn't expect anything different out of them um, just with how well they run the tournament. I mean, the reason why it's the cream of the crop. 
Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, especially come Sunday, you know, they say masters doesn't start till the back nine on Sunday. And so that amen corner just gets, people are going to be, need to be saying a lot more prayers, you know, (laughs) this year as they, as they run into that stretch, that's for sure. No doubt. And then you look over at 15, which is one of the biggest, uh, I think kind of determining holes on the stretch. It's a huge risk reward hole. You've seen people make tens, um, Tiger had his eight on that hole. You see people get stuck with wedges in their hands. And then you've seen plenty of Eagles also happen on this hole. And so what they did this year is they pushed it back about another 40 yards. And that doesn't sound, you know, all that insignificant or doesn't sound like all that much, but what it's doing is guys are hitting the bar ball far enough. Now when they're hitting the ball, 320, 330, 340 down the fairway, then you're turning a par five into it's driver eight iron for these guys. And it's a really, really tough green there on, on 15. It's a really shallow green in terms of depth from front to back. And so when you're hitting an eight iron in the green, you can hit the ball high enough to land it over the false run and keep it off the back of the green and be completely fine. Well, when you push back 40 yards, what's that going to do? It's going to drop you back three or four more clubs. And now instead of hitting an eight iron, you're hitting a four iron or you're hitting a hybrid. Um, or you hit a three wood for some of the short hitters. I, I mean, this hole is completely different. Now you're going to, I guarantee you'll see way more people laying up this year than you've ever seen prior. And then you've got this brutally hard wedge shot that everybody knows off this severe down slope on 15 during the layup area, or you're going to have people that are sitting there trying to figure out if they have enough club to clear that front edge, but not rocket one off the back of the green into the pond on 16. It, it almost turns it back into what it was supposed to be. It's not an island green, but it's supposed to play like one because if you go long, you can go in the water long. And if you come up short, you're screwed in the water short. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with that last point you made. I think it's just preserving the way that the hole was originally supposed to be played. Um, Because Sergio, the year he won in uh, 2017, he hit an eight iron when it hit the flag stick and and made that eagle, which pretty much sealed it for him. Um, And, you know, it's a hole where Sam Snead hit the shot heard around the world with a five wood to inside a few feet. And and it kind of gives you that huge risk reward coming down the stretch where, you know, you can try to press with a long iron or a fairway wood or knock it down and trust your wedge game. So I think it 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 preserved the original design of the hole more than changing it to what it to something different. Yeah, totally. And I mean, even forcing that layup doesn't make that's not an easy wedge shot as you said Kylie like I think Sergio the following year after he won pretty sure he opened with a 12 or a 13 on that hole you know something like that like oh let's check into defending champ you know and oh and he's out of it you know like it can stuff can change so quick on that hole um with, with that layup I'm uh, Frankie Molinari hit it in there um when he was chasing Tiger in 19 um you know just off on that left side of that fairway you know just you spin it off the front you know it 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 is a nervy wedge shot and um yeah i I think it's great for the hole it's great for that home stretch total risk reward rewards a good shot punishes a bad shot if you carry a wood a little bit long there you know that's that's skipping over into the water long as you said kylie so it's just it's, it's one of my favorite holes to watch on the course that approach shot is just so much fun as they're walking over that bridge you know it's just it it's special we saw it play out once again with the women's amateur this year. There was a girl that was sitting there in the fairway. I think she had, she was in between like a four iron and a, and a three wood in her bag. And she was like, I don't have the shot. Like I don't have a club that's going to clear this front edge. And so she lays up with like a pitching wedge. And it's just wild to think because it used to be bomb and then just flip it on the green. And, and I, I think it was either Rom or maybe it was JT was talking about that hole. They said they used, it was JT. He was like, it used to be a, not a, what if you know like if i'm going to go for it it's just what club and now it truly is going to be a conversation coming down on 15 for them every time like are you really going to go for it? Or are you going to try and hit that wedge off this down slope so it's going to be really really fun i love when augusta does this they they do it seems like this kind of two three four tweaks every year um and then that's not including anything that they do kind of with with bunkering or with uh, green complexes of flattening out a shelf or something like that or making one shelf more steep so all those changes happen, but these are the kind of the major course changes that they release out uh, every year. So, um, yeah, that, that kind of covers a lot of the, the preview and, and the lead up to it. So we'll go ahead and uh, let's let's hear some picks, guys. So, uh, you know, give me two, three names. Uh, you guys are, are more if you're if you're feeling really frisky. Who are you guys really looking at to uh, to get the job done this week? I got Rory, 
because I think it's his time and I think he's flying under the radar. Um, I think somebody like a Daniel Berger is probably due to break through win a major. He's a filthy wedge player uh, and he gets notoriously hot with his putter. And then we've been on a bit of a Kepka major drought. So those were, those are my three. It's the first time forever he's healthy coming into a major. Mm-hmm. That's true too. Yeah, the frosted tips are starting to fade at this point, too. So, you know, he's got a little <laughs> bit of his old mojo back. But, no, that guy, he just flips a switch in the big tournaments. He's He is such an enigma. You know, what was that? A couple years before he won the Waste Management or whatever, he had, like, six total wins and four of them were majors. You know, the U.S. Opens and the PGAs. Is, it's wild. Since um, 2016, Kepka is 64 shots better than DJ in second place in cumulative strokes at majors 64 strokes better <laughs> yeah be yeah what well, yeah what was that interview he goes i i don't know i just i guess i just care more about these things you know <laughs> like he's self-admitted that but i don't know i i just i get so romantic about the masters i mean you look at so many because so many styles can win you know you look at the bombers of the bubba and the dj um, but, and then you got the people that just light it up putting, you know, stereotype, you have to have a good putting week to win, but I mean, you know, the speeds and the Patrick Reed, you know, the ball strikers and Sergio and Hideki, you know, and then the Zach Johnson won it. I know that was in a, a weird year with weather conditions and stuff, but he laid up on every par five, you know, and, and lefties, Mike Weir, Phil Mickelson, Bubba, you know, I, Kylie, you know, shout out to the lefties, you know, but I, I, I don't know, but the last few years, it's been kind of in my mind, kind of the same style of golfer, somebody that is a great ball striker. That's not the favorite. A favorite hasn't won since 05, the favorite. And so a great ball striker whose putter just gets super hot and isn't like the longest. You know, you got Willett, Adam Scott, Patrick Reed, Spieth, Hideki. You know, some of these, but most of these guys aren't bombers. DJ was a bomber, but that was, you can throw that one out because that was, that course was target practice in the fall of. 2020 but and so my three long answer cam smith popular answer i mean he's hits it better than anybody right now puts it better than anybody right now and he if dj didn't exist he would have won the green jacket in fall of 2020 and then daniel berger i like that call joe you know he's so streaky great ball striker putter gets hot and then hasn't played well in the last month or two but patrick cantley just that same kind of mold of not a bomber, but hits it so well. And if the putter gets hot, look out. So those are my, those are my three. I, I picked Cantley the last two masters and I'm not doing it again. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> oh, that's, that is very true. He is, he's kind of burned a lot of people at some of these, these he's played well, he hasn't won, but. Um, I mean, his time will come. I'm, I'm certain it will. Oh yeah. I, although I, I don't know if his, I mean, it's hard to say his form because it's like going back to last year, he's only, there's only been one round that he's ever hit that he's lost strokes to the field, ball striking, but it hasn't translated in, in some senses as well. So um, I don't know if it's going to this week either, but my, my pick, my true absolute favorite this week. I mean, I have been gung ho on this, this for like four months ever since um, he got his caddy, but I think it's JT's week. Uh, I think that bones on the bag. I know JT has had the rec the course record here, um, but he played really, really well in the year. I think it was Reed. Um, it, I think JT finished up high that year. And I just, his stats, like Nate, like Nate said this year, he's been killing it. It hasn't translated to wins, but he's been way up there in all of his strokes gain metrics. And then you throw in bones on the bag. And I think that it's just going to add that, that last little piece of, the chemistry and just some of the things that Bones might be able to tell him of, hey, hit it here, um, you know, or you know, take a half a club less or a half a club more. And and especially in a Masters that might be really windy, that maybe a lot of people haven't seen some of the wind conditions. He has seen it with having been on Phil's back for so many years. So JT is my absolute favorite. But next up, I'm with you, Joe, on Rory. I think that all the Tiger talk, I think this might help him. A wet Masters definitely helps Rory. Um, maybe it helps him get out of the gate fast for once. It, he's been a notoriously slow starter here at Augusta, shooting over par almost every year since that that collapse. And so maybe this time with it being really soft and, and gettable on the first day, maybe that helps him get out to a good start. 
And, and then kind of going way on down the board here, uh, a past champion that's been playing really well this year, Adam Scott. Um, this Aussie, he's been playing good. I, I think that he's been putting well. He played really well at the Genesis. He played well at the match play, got out of his group, um, and should have honestly beaten Kevin Kisner if Kevin Kisner didn't want, didn't do one of the stupidest things I've ever seen in match play, coming back from three down with four to play, pulling a bunker shot, hitting it to like three feet, and then birdieing 18 to win the match. So I, I've got – I think Scott has a chance of an uh, outside chance there of, of getting it done as a former former champion. Heck of a pick. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, maybe a, another – Nate was mentioning lefties, you know, a lefty did win the, uh, the Gus national women's game. So maybe it's a last year you saw a Japanese girl win the women's amateur and then Hideki win. So if we see a lefty win this year, after a lefty wins the Gus national women's amateur, I'm going to have to start making my picks based off that because clearly there's some kind of weird correlation factor going on here. Um, yeah. With Phil out, I'm trying to think who the lefty would be. It would be Garrett Kigo. He, he, he'd probably be the Bubba. You know, and uh, Big Bob McIntyre would be about your. Oh, that's right, Bobby Mac. Um, those are oh, actually played a little bit better this year than he has the last couple of years. He has, yeah, and he it's has. an even year. He won what in twelve and four or four? Was it twelve and twelve 14? and fourteen? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's an even year. Maybe it is Bubba's year. Lefties. Um. <laughs> yeah. How about that girl just getting her driver's license and then going and winning at Augusta? She's yes. sixteen years old and beating all of these the college players. Like she beat like that's wild. It was, it was really cool to see. I don't know how much – I watched the whole thing for the first time in forever personally. Um, and so who was it? Uh, I'm trying to pull up this girl's name this year. Uh, Anna Davis, right? Davis? Yes, I think Anna that's, Davis? that's right, yeah. She was 16 years old. Yeah, Anna Davis. And she actually kind of won in a little bit of a collapsed fa- uh, fashion from the other girl that was, that was leading. I felt really bad for finishing double bogey bogey there with a – two shot lead, um, with two holes to go. But, uh, she, even in her interview, she looked pretty stunned. She like, couldn't believe where she stood. She was like sitting there. Cause the girl had just made a double when she walks off 18, she's two strokes down and the girl makes a double on 17. She gets into the interview room. She's like, um, and then the other girls in the trees on 18 and you're like, you might win this thing outright. <laughs> you need a playoff in this she goes out there and gets it done. It, 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 truly wild. And, and it really is cool what they're doing with the Gus National Women's Amateur. You see Jennifer Cupcho won the first one in 2019. She goes out and wins this past week on the LPJ Tour, wins her first major out there, just about running away from the field for most of the day um, and controlled that tournament from start to finish. And then last year, like I said, you saw a really cool correlation with the with the Japanese lady winning it. And then in, and Hideki saying that it inspired him to win his week. So I think it's really cool what they've been doing um, with that personally. For sure. And I think, I mean, the treat of it all is seeing Augusta in a different way, you know, they're teeing off from different areas and, you know, so their landing spots are in different areas and you're you're seeing the course um, in a totally different way where normally when you're watching the men play in the masters, um, it's kind of seeing, Oh, I see this approach shot, you know, in 13, this approach shot in 15, you know, kind of the same shots um, with the women, Kind of similar, but but just different angles. It's it, yeah, it was super fun to watch. It's got to be more relatable to the everyday golfer in terms of distances that far, where clubs are hitting into the green. You could think about a little bit more that way yourself. So, um, got to be a little bit more entertaining that way. So, um, one last really dumb fact that I couldn't believe that I heard, and then we'll get on out of here. Uh, Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson have both won a major more recently than Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth. And Rory. <laughs> but like, just to think about that and how wild, if you said that, nobody would believe you until they actually looked at the numbers. It's like, shoot, you're right. Um, I don't know if any of those guys are going to get done. We didn't say, none of us picked speed. I, I don't know if this is the speed here. He's really been struggling. It doesn't seem like it, but it, this has been known to click. Um, even not on his best years. So if he gets his putter hot, um, watch out because the, the guy could go bananas here again, anytime. Yeah, I mean, Speed, he's an enigma. Like watching him play the last few weeks, he looks terrible. Like seeing his pre-shot routine, I mean, it looks like, Kylie, I think I texted you, it looks like an 18 handicap on the range after a lesson. You know, try, <laughs> trying to figure out elbow here, take away here, bring it down here. 
and his you see these videos of him putting you know three three putt he three putted from three feet last week you know it's just just all these terrible things and then you find out oh he actually you know he lit it up Sunday you know like he just has such a knack for scoring unbelievably well in the ugliest ways and um and he loves Augusta so yeah I think you can't rule him out but yeah we'll see so any idea why we none of us have uh Rom love this week you know he's he has no short game <laughs> he's almost dead last in the PGA tour on strokes gained around the green and strokes game putting. Well, I think that's a pretty good reason. Um, <laughs> and when you start looking at Augusta, I mean, it's true though. And yet he's the odds on favorite. And I understand why he is with how he's played here. It's, it's one of those things, just like we're saying with speed is recent form or is past history, which one's going to play itself out because people turn, flip a switch here. Um, so I, I don't know what's going to happen if, if he can flip a switch and be able to, to work his way around the course. Um, he solidifies that this is just a great course for him. If he continues to struggle, then I think you'll see that this is a true legitimate issue for him. But he's really going to have to get fixed if he's going to want to compete coming down the stretch here for uh, the other majors this year. So, uh, last thoughts here, or uh, we we kind of covered it all. But um, you know, final thoughts. What you're looking forward to, obviously, Tiger. But um, anything else you you're really waiting or excited about? All of it. <laughs> Honestly, all of it. It's the best week. Yeah, the Masters is the best. I'd say two closing thoughts. One, yearly reminder, Jeff Knox has the greatest job in the history of the world. The marker that, you know, that gets to play um, along with the pros every year at the Masters. You know, just the member that just so the, uh, if a, the cut, uh, how does it work if the cut? It's an, odd, it's an odd number. Odd number he gets to play with them and he, and Rory has said in the past that he's beaten Rory and stuff. And I don't know, just, he's just a, a folklore hero. And then thought to Charlie Hoffman, seven under on Thursday, death taxes, Charlie Hoffman leading <laughs> after round one book it. And I can't wait to watch. I don't this know if Charlie's in the field this week, but, <laughs> but, but you know, PJ tour ban him after, after his, after his gripe with the rules committee, after he went off on Instagram or whatever that was. Oh, I, I don't think he's won it. I know he's not top 50 in the world. He hasn't won anything. So I don't know if he's gotten himself in there. But you do bring up a good point that just about every year somebody goes out there and fires something stupid. No, what it'll be, it'll be Justin Rose. It won't be Charlie Hoffman. It'll be Justin Rose. There you go. He's picked, you go. He's picked up the shelf for, uh, for Hoffman here in the last few years. But you're right. Someone always goes out there and fires something low on Thursday, is out there, shoots a 66-65, and you're like, who the heck, like, where did this guy come from? And he was 125-1 to win the Masters, and you're going to see him kind of fade throughout the week, I would imagine. But, yeah, it's awesome. I can't wait to watch every minute of it, every shot of it. Um, it's elite. You can see every shot you want. We all are going to be out there watching it. Can't wait to see what Tiger ends up doing. It's one of the most interesting storylines in the his golf has ever had. And then outside of that, we broke down all the other things to see. Uh, I would love to see Rory get the career grand slam this week. But like I said, JT, book it. It's happening. And uh, I can't wait to hopefully bring you guys back on next week and we can do a recap and talk everything about it and see what historical winner we have this week. So, all right, everyone. We appreciate you uh, you listening. And like I said, we will be back at you next week.